Somewhere in the remote Saharan desert, a lost city known as Zerzura remains hidden. Many have searched following clues left in the sands, traces of an ancient legend. Join us tonight for Episode 4, Part 1 on Into the Portal, as we resume the search for Zerzura. Welcome back into the portal. My name's Andrew McKay. And I'm Amber Ray. And here we are. We're back again. Yes. Episode four. Episode four. Part one. And we've been looking forward to this one for a while, and I feel like it's we've it's taken us a little bit of time to put it together. But, Definitely. But here we are. <laughs> a lot of information. Yeah. And we're excited because we're heading back into the yep. desert, <laughs> which I didn't really think we were going to head back to so soon, but here we are. just kind of happened. Yeah. Yeah. It really caught our eye, this one. It was like... <sighs> Something well, about lost cities in general for me, for exactly. sure. I mean, it gets everyone going. Lost treasures, lost cities. And then covering the lost army in our first episode, like, I feel like it was just really enticing. We kept getting little tidbits of this yeah, topic, so yeah. I was just like, huh, we need to dive into this a little bit Definitely. Further. And if, if for listeners out there, if you haven't had a chance to listen to our first episode on the lost army of Cambyses, there's, mm-hmm. yeah, like Amber said, lots of crossover to this episode. Yes. And um, Same neck of the woods. Yeah, it would definitely contextualize some things uh, to listen to that one too. Not that it's necessary for this episode, but it's a good one for sure. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're back in the desert and looking for the legendary city of Zerzura City, Oasis. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different interpretations. Exactly. And so, yeah, in the desert. And... We wanted to I'll give a little bit of a context of exactly where we're looking yeah. here. Start off with some so, general I mean, details about the place. Yeah. I mean, so obviously Sahara Desert, largest desert in the world. It's like 3.5 million square miles, which Jeez. would be, you know, just over 9 million square kilometers for us Canadians. Uh, and basically where we're dealing with is, you know, it's connecting from it's southeastern Egypt. We got south southwestern West. Libya. No, we got that backwards. Oh, <laughs> South, Already. Southwest. This is why we have a map. Egypt, Southeast Libya. Correct, correct. And then we got Sudan and, then, and Chad yes. as well. So it's really the junction of those three nations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's such a massive stretch of land that the explorers that we're going to cover in this first part, I mean, it took a while for them to get through even a fraction of it. It was such a hostile terrain too. Like, you know, you can't just... Very much so. Just walk out and just be like, all right, well, definitely. Kind of need some equipment, need some, uh, some, uh, <laughs> something. <laughs> yeah, some, some special stuff. So, but, but basically, how this um, episode one is going to go is we wanted to obviously contextualize the legend and then give the basis for uh, the the origin, the supposed origins, and then work our way through. Kind we of haven't even more... really said the name of the legend. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, we did in the intro. Oh, of course, yeah. of course. <laughs> but obviously, yeah, that we're looking for Zerzura. Yes, and, the lost city of Zizra. And, like, when we first started researching this, we definitely, we came across a lot of stuff saying that this was referenced in Herodotus. So, yeah. once again, here we are going back to episode one. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think it was Wikipedia was good the first one, obviously. Dotty, right? yeah, old, yeah, yeah, classic. Anyways. And, obviously, Wikipedia, that, that page especially was not 
very well peer reviewed or anything like that. So well, there wasn't a lot of in-text citations. There wasn't a lot of, yeah, just general references. No. It was kind of yeah. difficult. So we, and part. we would see that a lot in like blog type stuff. Exactly. There's other things that would t- talk about. It was almost as if they were like, it was like a big circle where they were just feeding each Pretty other. Pretty Yeah. With no actual primary source or anything like that or whatever. Yes, we did try. But basically we, yeah. the idea was from for, to some was that Herodotus had had mentioned a legendary city of Dionysus or Dion, Dionysus mm. who is the god of wine, um you know, entertainment things like that. And something we didn't Greek really god of Greek, wine. Greek god Greek god. And this is important because Yeah, this is something lots. we realized that we didn't actually know for the first episode and we kind of real when we were reading Herodotus we were like you know, he's, these gods seem interchangeable. He's the referring Egyptian to, gods. he's referring to Amon in one sentence and then Zeus in the next. And right. you're like, are, wait a second, are you talking about two different oracles or two different gods? But no, he was actually equating them because he was taking the Egyptian version and yeah. then converting it and putting the Greek lens over top. Yeah, just... basically saying that the Egyptian perspective of Osiris is actually the Greek god Dionysus and they just see it as Osiris and you know, the Greek superior lens is how he was operating. But that, I found that interesting. And so the connection there, like we could not find anything in. No, we could not refer- or find a reference to Zerzura. Or a city of Dionysus or a city of Osiris, quite frankly. But I looked into it a little bit more and it was definitely interesting because the idea that Dionysus was actually like more than just the god of wine and things like that. And it was actually related to the underworld. And mm. there was this, there was cult, there was sort of like cult religions that would sort of, you know, focus more on one God rather than the entire pantheon of gods. And this was, it existed in Egypt and in Greece and other, other cultures and stuff too, that had multiple gods. Mm-hmm. Some would focus on one more than others. And so this is what happened with mm-hmm. Osiris and stuff like that. So some people think that there could have been a secretive religious rites kind of place for Osiris or Dionysus that may have been misinterpreted as Zerzura or as hmm. some type of remote thing, but couldn't find any conclusive thing to back that up. At we all. searched. We, we went did. through our whole freaking edition of that. We talking. really did. So the first reference came from Herodotus for us when we started this look, but we couldn't find <laughs> Fourth it. Fourth century <laughs> so, BC. So that's yeah. where we're starting off. Right. Um, yeah. And then after that, we kind of jump ahead quite a few centuries we back. Um, we're into the 13th century now. AD. Yes. Yeah. AD. So. We're in the neck of the Middle Ages, and the reference came from a Syrian governor of a Fayum. So this is uh, an agricultural center, the Fayum, and it was located approximately, it was about several hundred kilometers southwest of Cairo, just for reference point. We will have um, some maps up on our website as well, Mm -hmm. um, in the resource section, or in the blog section. And um, yeah, so you can just reference that if you're kind of having a a bit of a struggle to picture it in your head. You definitely need maps when you're looking at some of this stuff. Like it does get a little bit murky. So yeah, we'll have it up there for sure. But (laughs) that's why we laid this part one out in this, in in an exact order of the kind of references, chronological Mm -hmm. order, because it's definitely easier to think of it that way. Yeah. And it's just fascinating the different expeditions and things that we're going to get into right in a sec. So yeah, 13th century reference. Yes. This was... So it was a Syrian governor, as I already mentioned, mm-hmm. and the reference was to an abandoned settlement called Zerzura. Right. Right. And so initially, we weren't really sure what to make of this because we did just see it on Wikipedia, and I was struggling to actually corroborate that, but I did find 
it referenced in a recent book. It was a political scientist called um, Jack Schenker. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of his um, his breakout book. It's called um, The Egyptians, A Radical History of Egypt's Unfinished Revolution, published in 2017. Cool. So yeah, he references that. And then he also references our next our next mention here, which came in the 15th century now. So we're kind of jumping ahead again. So basically that was really brief and it was just like, there just, wasn't much just the name, Zazura. Yeah. So it was just like, oh, just something to grab onto yeah. from the past. And you're like, okay. Yeah. These loose references to it. But he never actually, he never gave a location. No. As far as we could tell, it was just the fact that it was an abandoned settlement, which is very interesting. When we get into the theory section, that's definitely going to be something that we're going to touch on again. Yeah. The idea of an abandoned, yeah, things abandoned and who it could have been that was abandoning it in the first place or yes. who may have filled it in after it was abandoned. Well, that's abandoned. just it, right? Like what if, yeah. Okay, anyways. <laughs> yeah, get ahead, get ahead. <laughs> now, okay, we've gone through the first couple. This is where it starts to get real interesting. So, 15th century. I love this story. Very, very cool story. Very far-fetched. I think but... you should really, you should give it here because you're, you're, you're into it. Well, all right. <laughs> I can do that. So, this comes from um, 1481. It was a camel driver by the name of Hamid Kalia or Kiela. Anyways, so this guy, he was a camel driver, and he arrived in Benghazi. So this is Libya. Yeah. Um, totally weak, exhausted, on the point of death, essentially, with this tale of a white city that he uh, he discovered. Well, he didn't discover. He was saved by the inhabitants and basically nursed back to health. Right. So the story goes that he was initially um, in a group. They yep. were a traveling caravan, and um, they got caught in a huge stand- sandstorm that lasted about a week. And, um, basically everyone was killed, um, in his party, except for him. He survived by, uh, basically, um, sheltering himself under his dead camel. And so after the sandstorm, a week long sandstorm, That's could you imagine? Sandstorm. Anyways, yes, that was crazy. They do and happen though. They, I mean... <laughs> if this is a true account, um, we're kind of, uh, I feel like this is evidence to, um, oh, what was that guy's name in the first episode where he said, you can't die from a sandstorm. Oh, uh, Olaf Copper. Yeah, Copper. Anyways. Yeah. So uh, apparently people can't die in sandstorms if uh, this little tale has any credence. So anyways, um, this Hamid Kila, he is saved by men that he describes as having Aryan features and straight swords. Not the Arab um, skimters. The more rounded, curved (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Just very distinct. The ones that you see in Aladdin. Yeah. Disney reference. Anyways. (laughs) Okay, so essentially what these people did was they brought him to a whitewashed city that was described as a paradise of sorts. Um, And these were non-Arab people. They didn't have um, the classic, they didn't have the prayer call. That's what he definitely noticed, like, you know, like the the bell on the hour or whatever. And he also said that the women were not wearing headscarves. So very interesting. But he did say that they were speaking an Arab dialect of some sort that he was having issues um, understanding. They had to explain a lot to him. And Mm -hmm. it was was similar, but not that familiar. Right. Anyway, so it kind of maybe points to that. These people have lived in isolation, but they did have similar roots with the people in the area. Who knows? Based on this story. Yes. So Kalia or Kila, sorry, (laughs) is cared for by these people for about, I think he describes it as like a few months. And he's telling this all to, um, he's telling it to the emir of Benghazi. And so it's, it was the scribes that actually recorded this. Mm-hmm. And as he's telling the story, it became like the emir becomes more and more suspicious because he's wondering why the heck this guy showed up half dead yeah. in, in this place in um, Benghazi and why would he have ever left if it was such a paradise. Right. So apparently, yeah, he, um, he decided to search him. 
and they found a great ruby ring that was set in a gold setting. So very valuable. Mm-hmm. It's like, how the heck would a camel driver ever get his hands on that? Right. And Unless. they were immediately suspicious that he must have stolen this from from the uh, the people of Zezura. So anyways, <laughs> I guess uh, the Arab camel driver was sentenced to having his hands lopped off in retaliation for his crime of theft. And the ring supposedly um, stayed in possession of the emir and eventually came into possession of King Idris of Libya, who was eventually overthrown by Muhammad Gaddafi, yeah. Gaddafi in 1969. So, yeah, very interesting. We'll get back to the ring in our theories part because that is uh, very mysterious. It's uh, definitely yeah. not in the mainstream. Um, no one knows where it is now. No. So, I mean, uh, but it's a very tumultuous part of the world, right? With all these revolutions that were occurring. Yeah. Like if you believe it, it did fall into the possession of Muammar Gaddafi, then presumably it would be, it either would have been stolen during his, his, uh, ousting Mm -hmm. or, uh, just misplaced or it is still in the possession of whoever his family or on the black market. Maybe they sold it. Possibly. You never know. If you believe this story to be true. Exactly. But it, it is a fascinating story. And there were references saying that it had been studied. Correct? Yes. Yeah, it says that um, the ring itself was studied and it was of 12th century European origins. Very interesting. Very curious. Because, yes. yeah, mm-hmm. and that'll, yeah, that ties into a lot of theories too. Like the idea of 12th century European origin yeah. being the optimal word there. Right. So, mm-hmm. so again, you get two European elements, right? You get the description of the inhabitants right. as being um, fair-skinned Aryan right. and with the straight swords and no, um, no Islamic sort of religious elements, but yeah. with the Arabic language. So anyways, yes, yeah, very curious. It's very problematic in the whole larger picture, hey, this one account. Well, it's the only one like it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, there are other references to the... Um, I believe to the the idea that the inhabitants were were mo- much more fair skinned and mm-hmm. weren't um, weren't Egyptians or weren't who you would expect them to be necessarily. Yeah, and we'll come back to that too. But yeah, that's a really cool story. I mean, I I just wish that that ring was out there I, that we could see it that we yeah. could actually or or, the, or if there was some sort of even a secondary source, some other source from the '60s when uh, Gaddafi took over, saying that this was in their possession or something yeah. as like a. a bragging about it or something right? you know what yeah I mean? you think that'd be something but i don't know so that was there... the the first 15th century reference exactly and another thing that sort of um, adds credence to this account is his description of um of the the dove right it was like there was ah. the bird and the white walls and he describes um going through two wadis to get to this walled city that right. in the entrance there was this bird so our next reference again is 15th century. Do you want to touch on that one? Or? Yeah, I'll, I'll start it off. And, okay. But just to, just to give uh, some other context too, because we'll be referring to wadis a bunch oh, uh, yes. throughout this we throughout this episode. What a wadi is. So like a wadi <laughs> is basically a non-permanent water source. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like a seasonal water source. Uh, well, but it's it's like a carved like yeah. valley Valleys. or some sort of um, like a, a crevasse type right. thing. Right. Right. So what I'm picturing in my head, because like we're going to be mentioning this uh, plateau called the Gilf Kabir Plateau, and there is definitely you can um, like Google Earth it too mm-hmm. and just see all the different uh, wadis that have basically been like carved into it by past waterways and yeah. and seasonal waterways too. So, yeah. anyways, yeah. So a wadi is a, a valley or some sort of um, yeah narrow um, 
opening in a plateau or whatever and, and basically yeah, would it, allow for water accumulation exactly and and the thing is is like when they say temporary it makes it sound as if it would be like really quick like a flash rain and then there's like water there for a short period of time but it actually could last like for years at a time and so lots of people obviously in north africa were nomadic peoples because they, they would move from oasis to oasis mm-hmm. or water source to water source and so it's tough to kind of get a timeline on them because of that but anyway, so we're moving on to the second 15th century reference. This yes. is kind of the, this is the, this is the basis of the majority of this story. It's kind of a linchpin. This is the linchpin for the story. Mm-hmm. This was, this was the source that uh, Laszlo Almasi used and others, oh, others fell back on hard. for searching for Zerzura. Mm-hmm. So this is the, the Kitab al-Kanus, mm-hmm. the Kitab al-Kanus. So translates, translates as... roughly to the Book of Hidden Pearls. Mm-hmm. So, not to be confused with another text called the Kitab al-Bulhan, which, which which translates to the Book of Wonders or the Book of something similar to Wonders, basically. <laughs> um, there's debate about the direct translation, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that's also an Arabic manuscript that's dating to the 14th century. Um, and it is, you know, going over astrological signs. There's lots of drawings of animals and some of it's super creepy and stuff like that so not to be confused with that one if you know or unknown do, animals known animals okay <laughs> um, but some of the <laughs> drawings are bizarre when i glanced over it huh. but we're talking about the kitab al-kanus mm-hmm. so well, g- give us give us some uh, give us some goodies on that there yeah well basically um it's described as a treasure seeker's guide it is an anonymous author um and uh, some people actually ascribe um Hamid Kalia's um, account um, connecting that because it was such such close proximity time wise, and they actually there's some hypotheses that he is the author of the Book of Hidden Pearls. Oh, okay. So, anyways, yeah, this book describes the uh, locations of over 400 hidden treasures in Egypt alone and how to discover them, either by um, incantations, other occult means. There's definitely some pretty obscure directions, that type of thing. Oh, that'd be so much fun, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, basically, this is how. The passage goes. It says here, uh, this is a quote, Situated behind the citadel of El Suri, you will see palms, vines, and springs. Penetrate into the wadi and pursue your way up it. You will find another wadi running westwards between the mountains. From this last wadi starts a road which will lead you to the city of Zazura, of which you will find the door closed. This city is white like a pigeon, and on the door of it is a carved bird. Take with your hand the key in the beak of the bird, then open the door of the city. Enter, and there you will find great riches, and also the king and queen sleeping in their castle. Do not approach them, but take the treasure. End quote. Very cool. Isn't that sweet? How could that not... <laughs> that would get anyone uh, going. Like, yeah. obviously, yeah. And the fact that it's un, it's an unknown author, too, that just adds, adds to, to that. Ugh, it's like, yeah. that would just drive people nuts. Yep. And it totally did drive people nuts. Uh, mainly the, the, you know, the people from the Royal Geographic Society, who we will touch on in just a second. The Zazura Club. Fascinating group of individuals. So you said how, ma- how many different treasures were referenced in that again? Over 400. 400. Yeah. So where are all these other guys? You know, it's, it's <laughs> I wonder though, if any of them like, have actually been discovered, right? Yeah, I know, right? It's like, Ooh, we should look into that. We really mm-hmm. should. It's, it's too bad, though, that the manuscript is not available. That's the weird part, because we do get references into the 20th century from members of the Zazura Club yes. slash Geographic Society yeah. who claim... To, to have, have seen it. Well, claim to have seen it and also claim to have had it in their possession. So, 
the plot it does thicken. Al- yeah, I mean, obviously they kept it under wraps, and it's uh, it's in uh, who knows who has it now. I know, like a private collection. You got to wonder because a lot of this stuff was happening in the uh, before the, the Second World era. War too. Yeah. If uh, if it, if any of it made it into the hands of the Germans, possibly in North oh, Africa yeah, or something like that. But who knows? It's uh, it's not it's missing as of now. Nobody yeah. knows exactly where it is. Um, but oh, man, 400 treasures, that's just crazy. Isn't that neat? So anyway, that, yeah, that was the basis for so again, a bunch. And you get a very similar description of the city um, that came from Hamid's account. Right. The camel driver. Yes. So to me, that definitely makes it a little bit more plausible that he could have maybe been the author. But, um, you know, it's all, it's all conjecture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At this point, anyway. Yeah. So... But I mean, yeah, so, but people, people did take it seriously. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that kind of, uh, led into the 1800s and this yes. was, this was the real beginning of obviously this was the British in North Africa, in mm-hmm. Africa in general. Colonial ambitions at its finest. Exactly. Yeah. This was, the, <laughs> this was the imperialist century for mm-hmm. sure. I mean, obviously into the, into the, into the ninth into the, mm-hmm. the 20th century as well. But 1800s, we have one of the first references to Zerzura from a Englishman, mm-hmm. and that was Sir Gardner Wilkinson. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Wilkinson, I believe was John his Gardner name. John Gardner Wilkinson. Yeah. And that came in 1835. Mm-hmm. So this guy was in Egypt, and, you know, he... non traveling he, he... He wrote a handbook for travelers in Egypt, which is what we're referencing, and we will have yes. that available on our resource page. It's really fascinating. It's so cool. The whole book is available on Google Books. For free. Yeah, yeah. it's it's really cool. Mm-hmm. And there's only a couple references to Zerzura, but it's... The thing about this is, like, all of their work, all of this stuff, even if they weren't directly doing it for the purpose of discovering Zerzura, ties into the search for Zerzura. Because does, they're yeah. finding different water sources, they're finding different caravan routes, mm-hmm. they're going places in the desert that people had not different traveled to before. that yeah. people didn't know if they actually existed Exactly. There mm-hmm. were rumors and myths, and yeah. they ended up being true. So mm-hmm. why not Zerzura, right? Exactly. So, 1835, he... I mean, there's a couple... Do you, Like, what, what, what stood out to you then from Wilkinson, like... For me, with Wilkinson, um, the two different accounts. He references one account that um, places Azura five or six days west of the road to Farafa, which is an oasis, um, and it will be in the maps that we will be posting on our website. So if anyone wants to go and check that out, just just even just pause this right now. If you're having difficulties, <laughs> go on the website and just pull it up. And, yeah, and while you're listening, like just yeah, if you're like, hey, wait a second, what? Because they are very, very helpful. <laughs> so yeah, that right definitely. Now. But basically, yeah. So there was the one, um, the one oasis that was five or six days west of this road, and apparently this was discovered about at his time of writing. It was discovered twenty years ago by an Arab who was in search of a stray camel, and he saw several, um, several different footsteps of men and sheep. So he supposed it to be inhabited. Right. Uh, yeah, and so basically, this was an. Uh, oasis that was abounding in palms as he describes it with springs and some ruins of an uncertain date interesting yes so definitely a settlement of some type and yeah. maybe it is the same settlement that was referenced by the 13th century um syrian governor of the fayum so the settlement of Zerzura. right yeah anyways so that was one and then he also he also has another account that he references where zazura is only two or three days due west from dakla and okay. we will see that reference quite a bit. There's a lot of credence to the idea that um, it would have existed or could have existed in the past, um, very, very near to Dakla. Right. 
So, yeah, what about you, though? Did you... Well, I thought, I mean, obviously it's interesting. It's always interesting to read something that was published in 1835. Yes. And... A lot of political incorrectness for today's... I mean, obviously, yeah, it's super (laughs) super racist. (laughs) Not not a politically correct era Mm -hmm. at all. But interesting because obviously his account from people he had talked to was basically like, from the one reference that I have here was, you know, he had talked to... talked to Arabs saying that they had never traveled that far mm. and that it was basically a land of, of um, like, black giants, basically, yes. right? And so we were like, what does that mean? And obviously that, that runs contrary to the, other, the earlier references from the camel, mm. um, the camel driver and from... With the fair-skinned. With the population. fair-skinned encounters. And so a lot of people, including Al-Masi later on, Lazlo Al-Masi later on, would think that this possibly could have been the Tibu peoples, Tubu, Tibu. We've seen uh, several different spots. Who are yeah. nomadic North African peoples um, in North Sudan, Chad. And maybe things just like in that. comparison, they were quite a bit taller. So well, they actually are. They, they, they are taller than, <laughs> than other people in the region for sure. And, uh, so you're not talking like fabled, like fairy tale giants. No, people. not at all. But I mean, you know, whatever, six taller than the average people in the area so they would potentially be referenced that way Mm -hmm. but that's interesting because then that sort of makes you think about well could there have been an ancient african empire that existed pre predating the egyptians and that there there's leftover remnants from that that were so remote yeah and so that sort of ties into that and we'll get to that obviously much much more detail for in the theories in the second part of this uh of this uh two-part series here yes but yeah, that was an interesting reference from Wilkinson for me because mm-hmm. obviously that's the first one from an Englishman and it's different than the other accounts. It's different than the Kitab al Kanuts that Al Masi, another European, would end up following. Yeah. So. Interesting for sure. Mm-hmm. So then later on, 1874, we've got another guy. So it's a German explorer, yeah. Gerhard Rolfs. And lots of Europeans, man. They're adventurers, <laughs> the Europeans, obviously Germans. They're climbing yeah. mountains and doing crazy things. So they're into they uh, venturing into remote, uncharted Saharan and deserts. let's just say this right now. Like, this is pretty early. Like, we're still in the 1800s. But into the 1900s especially, um, this area became of strategic importance for political purposes. Very much so. Uh, it, obviously, we already mentioned the colonial ambitions of all these nations. Yeah. Um, there was definitely competing interests for resources. Huh. Oil. Big mm-hmm. time. So things like that definitely added to the allure of just exploring the area in general. So a lot of the accounts, um, especially from the Zazura Club and the Geographic Society that we'll reference, it was almost as if they had a dual purpose. And so, and they did want to establish a precedent. They wanted to have their people in there. So like when war broke out, say like World War II, they had... They had it in their back pocket. Well, there was two parts of it. There was a source of pride for a country to have discovered something before another country. Exactly. And there was strategic importance for getting them in there. And I feel like a lot of the times, obviously, governments would recognize the ambition of a lot of these adventurers and would and use, use it them. to their advantage. Yeah. And whether they, I mean, they're not stupid people. They probably knew that it was for political purposes, but it they got them funded. They were taking advantage of it, too. It got them funded and they could exactly. go do these things, right? Yeah. So that's what the era was like. And I mean, it's, it's very similar today. In, not in the same sense of imperialism, but if you're looking for funding to go somewhere to, to do something, then it's going to have to benefit someone else, too. Exactly. And that was what um, Almaji really depended on. He needed, um, he needed a, oh, his, uh, his patron, patron, whatever. Yeah, he, yeah. <laughs> Prince. And his, Prince, what was his name again? Prince We have Kamal, it down here somewhere. Kamal we'll, or something? Yeah, we'll get to him in a sec. 
Yeah, so anyways, we're heading back to 1873-74 with yep. this German explorer, Gerard Rolfs. So this guy, he basically was starting off from Dakla in this particular journey. So this is the Oasis of Dakla. Again, reference those maps. Yeah. And he was trying to cross the desert. He was trying to cross the Great Sea of Sand and get to Kufra, which was located in Libya. Yeah. So I would say that's probably like the... The southeastern quadrant of it's Libya. It's super remote. Like, Kufra Oasis mm-hmm. is very, very hard to get to. Very hard. So, basically, he failed the first time, and they had to... They couldn't traverse the high dunes. They ended up building a cairn, so basically a monument of stones. Yeah. And they designated it the Regenfeld to mark the end of his journey. And this was rediscovered by the Zizur Club in the 1900s. But, Rolfs, he didn't give up, eh? He nope. came back. Not a quitter. <laughs> 1879, <laughs> he becomes the first European successful in making it to Kufra from the north. So from the Mediterranean, um, he would have gone, he would have, I don't know if he would have actually crossed through Siwa. We definitely mentioned Siwa in our first episode, but that was a, a very northern um, oasis in yeah. Egypt. Yeah. Kind of bordering Libya too. So yeah, north, northeast <clears throat> Egypt. And anyway, so yeah, he would have come from there and basically it would have been like a, not a parallel tra- trajectory. It would have been a... a diagonal. <laughs> diagonal, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and so he basically, yeah, that was a pretty big achievement Definitely. for the time. Well, that's a ridiculously long way. And Siwa's already super remote, too. I wonder what he was using for, like, was he in a caravan? Was he it didn't using say, camels? It, it, he wasn't it, it, using... He had to have been using a small... He had to have had a small group. It was probably a camel caravan. Because there wouldn't have been cars at no, this point. No, not at this point in time. And, and No. I mean, they, and they struggled with cars in at the turn of the century, too. And when mm-hmm. they, were, they were using Model Ts and uh, jacked them up and had different techniques. But it was tough. They, yeah. they, they struggled in Building the Building tracks, um, deflating the tires so that they could... Uh, yeah, what was that for again? That was to just help not, um, help, like, they wouldn't have sunk into the sand? Is I guess, like, because there was different, um, they would run into different densities of sand. Some would be softer, some would be more compact, some would be, and they would hit different temperature changes. They'd be traveling different times of the day and the sand would change. And mm. the tires would change, obviously. They'd heat up, so they would end up, hmm. They yeah, there was a lot so of different So it was definitely techniques. a science and they were pioneering it. So. Yeah. A lot of struggles. Very much so. So he, but again, another European made mm-hmm. made great headway, and he. All these people are setting stepping stones leading up to what would be incredible discovery. I mean, they're they're it's discovering incredible things too, but what would lead up to really profound, zero yeah. related discoveries. In it's so funny because the they 20s. seem so insignificant on their own, but then when you sort of like piece it all together, you see the whole picture. Yeah, and it's it's kind very of it's cool. really neat. Yeah, very cool. It makes it's, me believe oh that this place did exist. Yes. And there's evidence for it that mm-hmm. we're going through right now. So, <laughs> so this would set the stage for the Zer- this would set the stage for the Zerzura Club. Yeah. So the Geographic Society funded expeditions. Um, yeah, they called themselves the Zerzura Club. Yeah. And they basically referenced um, the Kitab al Kanuz for for their source. Yeah. Or the Book of Hidden Pearls, as we discussed. And there was quite a quite a crew. And it was kind of funny when I first discovered this. Um, we do have links to all the articles. It's kind of difficult, too, because a lot of these are from academic databases, so you need either um, you need to be a part of an institution, or you can sign up through JSTOR, and they actually have a free program where 
is completely free. You can sign up and you can have up to three free um, PDFs or articles in yeah. your on your bookshelf at one time. Yeah. And you can remove those so you can keep like swapping them out. So you even if you didn't go to university or whatever, um, you can gain access to these, which is really fun. And yeah, we I was just it. <laughs> just reading through these. They're very short. They're like max five six pages a piece. And they're, they're, it's almost like they're bickering. They're fighting back and forth. They have their little, their their own hypotheses and things. And it's just Well, like, they all wanted to be the one to find it. Yeah. They all wanted to be that one. But it's funny because they all added to the whole puzzle. And it was just yeah. all these little tiny pieces and things. I don't know. The I discourse it, was constantly being added to. There was always new information. Yes. There was always new discoveries and interpretations of old discoveries. Exactly. Yeah. yeah which is a big part of this. Reinterpretations of old discoveries. Mm-hmm. Uh, that plays a big role into, yeah, that plays a big role. So, okay, who would you say is the first to kind of make headway into this? Well, I think, okay, the, okay, for me... The, Stick to chronological, I I'm guess. sticking to chronological, but this is also, I mean, it's in order chronologically, but it's definitely the, definitely one of the more important persons, people, rather, I should say. Lieutenant Colonel N.B. Delancey Fourth. Right. I don't actually have a reference as Military to where man. this guy was was he British? Yeah, he was British. British? Yep. These okay. were all British because the Geographic Society was British. Yeah, ro- oh, yeah the Royal Geographic, yes. Royal Air Force, Royal this, Royal that, of course. And that's kind of an important note, too, because we did touch on the whole like political significance of the area. Yeah. And these were military men, for the most part. True. And during World War II, they all formed, what was it called? It was the... Uh, some sort of like guard of the desert and they like basically did patrols yeah, yeah, and all yeah. this stuff. It was just... like the, de- oh, what was it called? I have it down here in a sec. Uh, <laughs> the long range desert group. Um, yeah. That would eventually be a significant part of the British um, campaign uh, against the Germans in, wo- in the Second World War. Right. Um, anyway. So, but this guy, uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel N.B. Delancey Fourth, it was interesting. He did expeditions in 1921, 23, and 24. And he didn't really find too, too much in terms of, like, uh, ruins or uh, pectoglyphs that other people would end up finding later on. But he did notice certain things, uh, same sort of things that I think uh, Pasha Johnson, mm-hmm. is, that, is that the name? Johnson Pasha. Correct? Johnson Pasha. Regarding the birds. Yeah. So he would was traveling and he discovered some of these caravan routes and he was traveling west of Dakla too, I believe. And basically noticed flocks of birds flying in the direction that is not where they should have been going. Mm-hmm. Like, w- directly towards like where there's way no water, the, yeah. as far as anyone knew. Mm-hmm. And so they kept they kept along their journey, and further along they ended up, I don't know if they actually shot one of these birds, or they found deceased birds or whatever, but they di- ended up dissecting multiple of them. I think the account them. I heard was that they just found a dead one. They found a dead one. They dissected it, and... Lo and behold, they're, they've been feeding on olives. Mm-hmm. Not from the olive groves that they knew of in the West. It's clearly, clearly from olive groves that they did not know of, which lead, obviously led them to believe that there was water sources that they did not know of way further West. Mm-hmm. So this was, a, this was an indication that uh, there was much more to be seen water, water source-wise. And led, you know, gave credence to Zerzura and other oases in general and other wadis that had supposedly dried up. So he was basically discovering bits of the Abu Balas Trail, the yeah. caravan route right. that basically went. It was a southwest trajectory from um, Dakla. Yeah. So from Dakla down, um, passed through the Gilf Kabir into um, the interior Chad Basin. Right. And again, we do have a map, and it does show you 
exactly where that trail was. So if you're curious. Is that that same caravan route from the first episode? Or was that a different caravan route from Siwa? Or does it extend the whole way down? It does extend, yeah. Obviously, yeah. there would have been a few different ones. Yeah, or they may have intersected at certain points exactly, or whatever. Yeah. But they, they were, way, obviously, they were way longer than people thought they were. Yeah. And it was like, we mentioned that in episode one, Al Massey finding pots. So the actual, the, the birds. Yeah. At what point were they found, I wonder? That, that was the thing. I tried to find it. I'm a, I mean, presumably this was, it was obviously... you wouldn't have known which direction the dead bird was flying. It was, well, the, they were flying west. They, they were flying They were west. flying southwest um, into territory towards what would be, yeah, this is eastern, southeastern Egypt, and you're going to be getting into sort of central western Libya. Central eastern Libya, So they were Libya, coming sorry. from the north of Egypt then. Yes, so that, honestly, like, that could have been, depending on where he was, the exact location, which we don't have, I feel like it wouldn't be a stretch to say that the birds maybe could have come from um, Farafa, which it's was possible. known for having olive it's groves possible. and stuff. It's possible. And I think that's where what some of the rebuttals to his yeah. his his writings have I do been. remember um, the other, the other guy, the other guy, you know. That dude. Um, Pasha Johnson. Or Johnson Pasha Pasha. Johnson. Yeah, he basically, um, he described finding a bunch of dead birds. Hmm. And like, again, yeah, he, he definitely was of the same mind that yeah. this was a strange migrational route. It had to have been. And, and then th- that kind of leads into the idea that the actual name of Zazura is derived from the Arabic word zezuras, which is actually, um, so it's Arabic for little bird. Right. So in that sense, it almost seems like that could have been a different version or maybe it was more natural. Cause in my mind, I'm almost picturing two different places. I'm picturing this magnificent walled city that's like hidden in some secretive wadi yeah. valley or whatever. Yeah. And then I'm also picturing something that's a lot more natural and a lot more just, um, just maybe it was just, maybe it was just filled farmed. with birds and, you know, and that's what it was called Zazura. Zazura, you know. It just happened to be a water source that was yeah. significant. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah. I, I just keep going back and forth on that regard, but. I think it could I'm have curious. been, it could have been both. And we'll, we'll come to that in the and, theory Okay, section. so this Johnson Patrick guy, he's very interesting too, because he was the one that claimed to have the Book of Hidden Pearls in his possession. That's right. And that he apparently loaned it to the Department of Antiquities in 1905 for translation, but he doesn't say whether or not he actually got it back or where it is now. Well, or what, what Department of Antiquities is he referring to? Good question. Egypt, is it the, like, I think it was the Egyptian. I mean, at the time, mm. obviously the Egyptian Department of Antiquities the, would have been the British Department exactly, of Antiquities. Exactly. Yeah, the British colonial, um, yeah. Egyptian but, Department of Antiquities. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Um, Very official. But it's, that's not clear. So it is. We, we don't, we don't really know. The no. other thing about, sorry, just to go back to Delancey, that was significant, yeah. not just the birds. He, like, he did find other things, right? Like, he found sort of uh, uh, evidence of Neolithic habitation in the West, uh, yeah. uh, flint implements, um, evidence of so ancient like campfire fragments, evidence of uh, petrified... Things to grind grains? Yep, things to grind grains, petrified o- ostrich and oyster shells in certain areas that people had obviously... Ostrich? Tr- People had obviously sorry tra- ostrich bones or ostrich bones. like petrified like yeah like remnants of an os- of ostrich skeleton I presume so not the presumably. eggs the actual bird the actual yeah pet- petrified um, oyster shells presumably from trade 
right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is significant. Obviously, these it's, he, he's, he's, he's adventuring further along these caravan routes. And finding Neolithic habitation is important because mm. obviously we know that, you know, Africa's so Neo- the cradle of civilization and there's obviously people there. But. Neolithic period basically was pre-Egyptian, pre-ancient Egyptian culture. Yeah, this was like almost stone, this was like stone age. Yeah. Stone ages. Very, um, But it's obviously, we have this conceptualization of the stone ages as exactly what that name, like the connotation of that name, stone ages. What do we use, what do we say when, when somebody's playing at old school today, but like you're back in the stone ages, but it's like, we don't, we don't know to the extent. We're how not significant... saying that it was a primitive culture. By exactly. Any means, exactly. That's, what it, that exactly. Mm-hmm. that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. So he found some significant things for sure. Mm-hmm. We're moving on. Fancy. Now we're moving on. So there was, yeah. So this is all in the 1920s. Hey, yeah. like this was the heyday. It really was. This yeah. was the heyday. It was the fever. It was like Zizura. the gold rush of Zizura. It really was. Mm-hmm. The gold rush of just like searching for lost stuff in general. Yeah. You know, like out in, uh, in uh, searching for El Dorado and things in Central America. It was a time America, of great optimism. Even after, well, maybe not so much after the First World War. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not. People were trying to forget that, you know, the 20s was the roaring 20s. Yeah. So it was a fun time to be around. There was lots of money. There was lots of, um, yeah, just adventure and just uh, a sense of putting the past behind you. And yeah. Right. Just, anyways. <laughs> so the next reference I have here is okay. from, so it's actually, a, it's again, it's a 20s reference, but it's a 1933 newspaper article, um, University of, about a lecture at the University of Hong Kong by a major Ralph Bagnold, who was a British army officer and ended up leading the long range desert group during the second world war because of his, his experience in the desert. And he operated in the 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. So he had different expeditions in 1920. He was also a member of the Royal Geographic Society as well. And he would go on to critique Almasi and P.A. Clayton's work. Mm-hmm. So he had an expedition in 1929. And basically, mm-hmm. he they were just... every Every few years, they're pushing further. They're pushing further than... Well, but even before that, right? Like the Prince Hussein Kamal al Din, he this is nineteen twenty three, twenty four, right? Right, actually, We're sorry, jumping ahead. I should, yeah. So he, he so in his lecture, it, he references this 20, 1923, That's right. So Ahmed Ahmed Hassini Bey. So he was the he was an Oxford educated Egyptian diplomat, and he actually was an Olympic athlete too. Apparently, he <laughs> in fencing. I don't know how he what? did, Crazy. but uh, yeah. So nineteen twenty two, twenty three, and basically he worked under King Farouk. Um, the king of Egypt at the time, and he ventured into the Saharan desert uh, in remote parts of the Libyan Sahara, Mm. moving from the Mediterranean coast, traveled south to Kufra. He apparently employed... To kind of retrace the steps of um, the the Rolf guy. Yes, yeah, he was basically taking that same route as him and then trying to push slightly further further than that. Uh So supposedly he had employed the services of some nomadic African peoples. It was not specific exactly who they were, possibly the Tibu peoples. Mm -hmm. And he was the first Egyptian at the time to have discovered the Uwanat mountain range. It's a modern discovery. Modern discovery of the Mm -hmm. Uwanat mountain range. So there were, there were legends of the Uanat mountains and people sort of knew they loosely existed even in the time of Herodotus, but people never went there. So and it was never... This, this mountain range in particular becomes very significant as just a, um, a, a place marker. Yes. And just a reference point for everyone else going in after this. Very much so. Yes. And um, basically, yeah, like even Prince Hussein Kamal al-Din, who was Almazi's patron, yeah. um, he did his own exploring in the 1920s and he basically... Yeah, he went to the spot 
Um, this was in 1926. Okay. And um, basically, oh, even before that though, in 1924, he he basically retraced again um, the Rolf, the guy, um, the German dude. Right. And he rediscovered in February of 1924 um, the cairn and the monument called Regenfeld. So that's kind of cool. Eh? He's Very just kind of cool. like, oh yeah. Found and then the he marker. also, yeah. And then in his second journey in 1926, he made it to the Uwanat Mountains. And he started from Dakla, and he used the Abu Ba's trail that had, the, the parts of it that had been discovered. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot more to discover that totally. they didn't know about. Yeah. And that won't come until much later in the 20th century. But anyways, yeah. So he just basically made some more inroads into the area. And that kind of, like, fueled his passion for continuing with Almaji in the 1930s. Right. Until his death in 1932. Definitely. Yes. So I guess another person that would be significant to mention at this point would be, um... Harding King, W.J. Harding King. Yeah. Yeah, he was definitely significant. Yeah. What do you have for him? Um. I mean, he makes, okay, like, here's what I got. So, like, Harding King, I mean, he's got, he's, again, he's not, he's struggling with cars. He's struggling to use motor vehicles, and so yeah. he ends up doing the majority of his work with camel trips out of Dakla. Um, so mm. he's, he, you know, he had, he took several different routes in his expeditions, 200 kilometers southwest of Dakla in 1909. Exactly. Yeah. He um, was an early one. We yeah. should have mentioned him off the bat early because he made huge, um, inroads in map making and he discovered two peaked hill, which okay. was by the Uinat mountain ranges. Right. So that again is another significant point. And I believe the... he discovered pectoglyphs. Like the first guy, uh, you know, uh, Ahmed Hassini Bay in the 22-23, I think he like when they when he got to the Uinet mountain range, they, he found pectoglyphs too. And pectoglyphs are basically just for people who don't know, similar to like a, you know, it's not a drawing, it's an etching. So it's mm-hmm. literally carved out of the rock. So Ooh, it's, as opposed it's, to having ink and, and, uh, as opposed to using a, like a, a type of ink or paint or whatever, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's actually like a an etching right into the rock, and he found uh, ones that were similar to what would be discovered later on, but depicting, uh, you know, life that mm-hmm. presumably never existed in that area. Yeah. Animals that didn't, giraffes, hippopotamus, people living there. That's so crazy. And, and uh, again, yeah, I want um, Almazi, he'll make more discoveries in that regard, and same with the later um, Bergman as well. Indeed. But another interesting thing about Harding King was that, yeah, he did make several camel trips out from Dakla, and he basically, he made it 200 kilometers, basically southwest, and anyways, he apparently, he, his attempts to go further than this two-peaked hill that he, uh, he discovered, it was, quote, thwarted by a native guide loyal to the Senussi (laughs) who tampered with his water supplies. Right, yeah. Which is crazy. But even despite that, he managed to make a pretty accurate map of the Libya desert based on information gathered from natives. And he also, he also, um, yeah, he, he it included this oasis of Oanat, so another oasis. Yeah. There's so many out there. And also, he, pre- he made the prediction at this point that there was going to be more oases somewhere um, roughly 400 kilometers to the southwest of Dakla based on the stomach content of migrating birds. So again, Once again these we birds. get the evidence. Yes, the birds, the birds, So the just to recap, we've got the translation of Zerzura involving birds. So like it mm-hmm. means little bird. We've got the reference, the reference from uh, the, from uh, Delancey birds, Johnson Pasha with mm-hmm. the birds. And now again, and Harding King. So they're all pretty focused on birds, which is actually very accurate though, right? That's Ties a very, into it. It's not far-fetched, Not right? at all. By any means. I, yeah. 
But anyways, it was so funny. All these guys, they had, like, little little points of contention. Like, um, there was one guy's name was Ball. I can't remember his first name. But basically, he had a little spat with King, disagreeing on the assessment of water levels and whether or not there could have been an oasis that existed based on the, the sandstone and clay deposits and all this stuff. And those were kind of thrown out later in the 20th century, so I'm not going to really dive into that too heavily. But basically, um, Ball got pretty frustrated with King, and um, he... <laughs> He basically got to the point where he just concluded Zazura was pure myth. And this is a quote from him. What he a says, dick. I know. He <laughs> says, quote, We must conclude that the lost oasis of Zazura has no more real existence than the philosopher's stone. End quote. We must. Must conclude it. We must. Okay, buddy. Right? Yeah. Anyways. So anyway, yeah. What a and then, it's so funny, just... That's almost a reference to our third episode where we're like, hey, maybe this Wasper Stone was something. <laughs> or had basis in something, right? Exactly. No, the evidence that we've seen so far, like, would run contrary to that idea. Mm-hmm. You know, basically what people, all, all we've seen so far up until the late 1920s is people didn't think water sources existed, and sure enough, they still do. And ancient ones, even earlier than the, the ones that these people were finding in the 20s, may have existed as well. Yeah. So it's just constant. Every every hundred kilometers you go, you're proved wrong, mm-hmm. basically. So okay, I'm back to Major Bagnold now because I kind of skipped ahead to that guy. Bagnold. Okay, Get so he Bagnold. again, he was in the yeah. 20s, late 20s, early 30s. Mm-hmm. He was a military guy again as well. Mm-hmm. But I'll dial this in. I'm not going to talk about him for a long time. He discovered a lot of stuff, and one of the things was pectoglyphs as well mm. because he basically discovered the Mordy Depression. Is what it's called. So oh. it's basically like a canyon kind of a thing in what is bi- what is now Chad, like North uh, Chad. Yes. So and that could have been the location of these ancient paleo lakes that we'll get to in our theories exactly. section, part two. So yeah. stay tuned. There's a lot of uh, yeah. There's oh, a, there's so much. So much. Mm-hmm. So anyway, but he found this Morty depression. Nobody had gone that far before, and he basically it, this was one of the most significant Saharan grazing grounds for North Sudan and Chad and these types of areas and lower that that area, mm-hmm. and other Arabs didn't know of it. Pe- people did not know of this before, hmm. and he found pectoglyphs there. So he these were some of the first ones, like um, giraffes. Okay, so animals more animals that were uh, more animals and more obviously depictions of people, more depictions of was people there... living there. Um, and they I were found at wadis. There, there was more wadis, uh, uh. you know, around this Mordi depression. And there's all these water sources, and there's clearly Neolithic, uh, ne- uh, Neolithic implements being found, and then mm-hmm. possibly, you know, the actual the actual pectoglyphs, whether they're directly associated with those Neolithic implements or not, I don't know. But there's there's in hab- there's habit there's pe- there were people there. Yeah. There was, there's there was the civilization there. there, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's crazy. It's really cool. That is really neat. So he, yeah, that, that was his contribution and he was a part of the Geographic Society. He went on to critique Almasi and Clayton's work and I guess we're kind of moving into those two right now. Yeah. yeah. So give that us was... the lowdown on, on, uh, on, on Almasi and Clayton. Yeah. So we've basically covered, uh, well, in our first episode, we did touch on Almasi a bit. We did. He was a Hungarian researcher, desert enthusiast, um, described as one of the last of the romantic geographic adventurers. Uh, and again, it the basis a, of the movie, the and the, the book, English the English version. patient, which I actually have mm-hmm. not read, but yes, I probably won't to be honest with you. But and we actually do have this really neat um, book that we're featuring in our bookstore, and it is the true story of um, the search for Zazura, which included Almaty. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, he basically started exploring the Libyan desert in the 1920s, 
roughly 1926. He was inspired by, again, the um, Kitab al-Kanuz, the Book of Hidden Pearls, and he was determined that he would find Zazura in the western side of the Gilf Kabir Plateau. Yeah. So this is a lot further south than previous um, theories and things. Yeah. Because we've seen a lot of um, sources pointing to, say, um, west of Farafa, west of right. Dakla. Yeah. They don't say southwest, they say west. They just say so, west. Anyways. So this is the difference, basically, between if you're picturing the Nile River... Mm-hmm. The, this is the, this is the difference between going halfway down the Nile from the furthest possible northern part, so like literally mm-hmm. halfway down in in, in in eastern Egypt, and heading west. This is the difference between that and heading much much further south between basically literally when to the you border. are right on the tri border of Libya, Egypt, and Sudan, mm-hmm. and it's all desert. I mean, it's all remote. It's all desert, and Almazi he's. He was definitely, yeah, he was a pioneer, especially in regards to his method of transport. Like we've already mentioned, he was a pioneer of, um, of, yeah, like using, like traversing these dunes. He had a special way of like speeding up and slowing down depending on the point of the slope that you were on. Yeah. He also, again, pioneered the whole, like the deflating of the tires to help with, um, With the grip. Exactly. Yeah. Things like that. Genius, really. And he also was the first to combine road like vehicles like Ford whatever the Model T's and aircraft right (laughs) and it was so funny actually he ended up buying this aircraft it was just like a teeny tiny little what I'm imagining to be like um similar to like a Cessna or something like that (laughs) and uh basically (laughs) he was flying it with his one of his partners and they crashed and they almost died like they're actually declared they were declared dead like they were supposed to be meeting people for an expedition and it was called off because they thought that they were just they were gone. like they're gone but they ended up surviving and they reconstructed <laughs> the plane and used it in their 1932 search so basically yeah he was accompanied by sir robert clayton um this other guy a wing commander called pendril so that was his uh, his pilot right and then this patrick clayton who was a surveyor and he made significant um map making in rows as far as the gilf career he went there in the late 1920s and mapped out a huge portion of the western side and then that's what they used as a reference point when they went in there to search for the actual place for Cicero. right so anyways this was kind of cool i found a 1932 geographic journal article from patrick clayton okay and basically it's it's a pretty lengthy quote but i feel like it's significant yeah Mm-hmm. It definitely is. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, ready? You got this. Whew. All right. So, quote <clears throat> from Clayton. <sighs> On our return to the airplane, it was decided to use up the whole emergency reserve of the petrol in two short flights, enabling all four enabling all four of us to record our impressions of the wadi. A careful examination has made it possible to plot the head of the wadi on the map. So this is a wadi that they had spot. Sorry, I'm, I'm end quoting. <laughs> this is a wadi that they had discovered from the air in one of the first days of their search. And so okay. on the last day, this is what they decided to use up. That's why they decided to use up all the reserve petrol so that they could, because they were already on their way back. They're like, they hadn't discovered anything, but yeah. they had made, yeah, sort of, sort of discoveries. Like they had discovered more, um, more pectoglyphs and things like that so basically yeah they went into the into the plane and okay i'll pick up the quote here so where am i here so quote a careful examination has made it possible to plot the head of the wadi on the map with within three or four kilometers 
and it turned out to be much nearer to the scarp than noted during the duration of the first flight had led us to believe. It could easily on foot uh, be reached be reached on foot from a camp below the scarp near where we climbed the path. This is kind of, sorry, is this a little bit? No, keep going. That's yeah. Just, this, yeah. It's, it's just a little bit obscure. It's hard to picture. It's a bit obscure, but that's okay. Keep mm-hmm. going. So basically, um, this quote again, we consider it certain that this wadi is one of those whose existence and occasional occupation by Arabs has given rise to the legends of the wadi Zazura and the wadi Abd al-Malik, which was a derivative of that. Okay. So anyways, it derives its water from the occasional rainfall on the Gilf Kabir Plateau and not from the source of artesian wells of the oases. At present, this district, like the Uwanat, has had no rains for several years, but water would almost certainly be available in such a wadi for a year or two after rain. So mm. again, that's what you referenced. You're like, it doesn't, yeah, exactly. It lingers. Yeah. And it might be in the ground, but yeah. it's still there. Anyways. Well, um, of course, these pectoglyphs they're finding yeah. indicate that, in fact, that the water sources at the time, whether these pectoglyphs are Neolithic or just, just, just after Neolithic period in the transitionary period, if there's giraffes and animals like that there, those water sources are lasting for more than a year to two years. And this is really significant here because he goes on to say that they had found fresh wild sheep tracks in the district. So it may be that there is water to be obtained. Right. And you know what's funny too? Like even in all these accounts where it's like, even Wilkinson when he's like, oh, like this was discovered 20 years ago by um, an Arab that was like wandering after a stray camel. It's like, hey, wait a second, maybe that camel knows there's water somewhere. Maybe yeah. he's actually going somewhere. Well, if they're already I mean, super, super remote yeah, and maybe some sort of unfortunate situation comes up. We were, yeah, we were talking about this, like a camel, they're desert, they're desert creatures, like just like a bird in the same sense, like they know where they're going. They have this evolutionary instinct. It's almost like the, uh, oh, what was it called? Where people are trying to find water with the stick. They got the kind of, the, oh, Lord, they've got remember. that thing where they're trying to find water. I can't remember what it's called, but anyway. But it's but legit. It's like animals. They used it in California, that the is, pioneers That is too. innate in animals. Mm-hmm. And if a camel wanders off, like it's going to, it's going to, it's going to head presumably in the right direction. <laughs> presumably. Not necessarily, but, uh. So it's kind of unfortunate. Like these guys, they went on this expedition in 1932 And then the following year, because they did plan to come back and just sort of pick up where they left off, but two out of five ended up dying, including Prince Kamal al-Adin and then, um, and then, oh, the, the Patrick dude. Well, Clayton died. Not Patrick Clayton. Didn't the first Clayton pass away and then, and then the other Clayton was the only one? I can't remember. Because <laughs> there's two Claytons. There's, okay, here's the Sir thing. Robert Clayton East Clayton was okay. the one that died. Okay. And Patrick Clayton survived. Right. And right. that's why you actually have this account from him. And he he served in the, the long, what's it called? The long range. Desert. Oh, yeah. The okay. desert for long the, range. Yeah, the uh, long range. Or whatever. Uh, uh, long, yeah, long range desert group for uh, designed for combat missions mm-hmm. World War Two. So this is, hey, so basically... Almazi did go back, though. He did, um, he, yeah, he found the cairn of Regenfeld, um, that was found by predecessors of his as well, including Prince Kamal al-Din, who had apparently left a note at Regenfeld. And just to be clear, Kamal al-Din was the primary source of funds for all of this. Yes. He funded all this. Almazi was not wealthy. No. Like, he, you know, he, he, they, they needed this guy. And after he passed away and the, mm-hmm. uh, the first Clayton passed away, it definitely became tougher. It did. And he even, it's funny, when they went back, 
Um, he actually made a memorial in at the Gilf Kabir. He erected a memorial to the prince. Um, and then he also apparently discovered rock paintings on boulders above this spring that was basically the, at the Uanad Oasis. Right. So he's discovering a little bit more. And again, yeah, this is 1933. Um, he discovers a great number of new sites. Most importantly, the two painted shelters at Wadi Sora and many unknown engravings and paintings at Kakar Tal, which is just, it's within the Gilf Kabir. Yeah. Just, these are all really yeah. scary little references. Yeah. But yeah, so he's basically, he made some inroads. We actually have some photos too of him. Like there's one of him standing in that cave where yep. there's all the yep. paintings and stuff, which was kind of interesting, I thought. but The pectoglyphs and the paintings and things that he found were definitely, like they were um, to me more profound than some of the earlier ones, even though they were like animals and stuff like that, because they were more... Um, indicative of human inhabitation, habitation. Mm-hmm. So like um, the cave of swimmers, did you come across that? No. So the cave of swimmers is what it's known as, but this was one of Almasi's, uh, this was the Gilf Kabir Plateau. Um, and this was um, not pectoglyphs, but paintings, oh. rock paintings. And yeah, Almasi discovered these. And uh, this is what they look like here. They're, they're like uh, swimmers, human swimmers. And so it's called the Cave of Swimmers, and it's basically depicting these these human humanoid creatures or human like depictions. Uh, oh, cool! Clearly, swimming like it's pretty awesome. And we'll yeah. have that picture up on the website, and you guys should check so it out. What body of water were they swimming yeah. in? Yeah, <laughs> what what are you what are y'all swimming in, guys? Uh, probably not the sand, presumably. Uh, no. You might get a little chafing going on there. But, uh, yeah, so, (laughs) so yeah, that definitely added to the, uh, I mean, they're, they're, yeah, really interesting paintings. Like go, go take a look at these pictures and we'll have those up. It's kind of funny too, because when we, um, we watched a documentary on the lost army, remember that one? It was like from that geologist in the 19 or sorry, in the early 2000 or mid 2000s. Yes. And they had an individual on that was a contemporary of, Almazi, and he was saying that basically Almazi took what he thought to be the location of Zazura to his grave, and he didn't tell anyone. But he he claimed to have known. He claimed, but he to got have known. Dis- he got distracted. Yep. He got distracted by the war. Yeah, the Second World War of, definitely yeah. kind of buggered things up a bit. Yeah. The you know one of the interesting things that I sort of saved part of it for the um, part for two the, for the part two theories section, uh, but I, I I'll make I'll make mention of it now. Because Almasi, you know, he wasn't just venturing and doing these, you know, expeditions. He was doing a lot of anthropological work, like interviewing people and talking to people. Hmm. And he, um, you know, in the 1930s, the Italians were occupying a lot of North Africa. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the Farfra, Fafra Oasis was one of those locations. And despite it being super remote, the Italians had made it that far and had used it. Hmm. And uh, so some of the people had kind of whether you want to call them refugees or not or whatever, they had moved uh, moved away. Mm-hmm. And so one of these elderly people Almasi had talked to, and I think this was 1933. Can't remember if that's exactly correct. But mm-hmm. anyway, he's talking to this elderly gentleman, Arab, Arab gentleman, and uh, basically describing how he's asking him questions about what, what parts of this desert are Arab. You know, what parts, mm-hmm. what parts are you familiar with and what is Arab and what isn't? Mm-hmm. And this guy basically told him that, you know, there's a significant part of the desert that's Arab, that's Egyptian, that's this, that's that, but that there's sections that belong to the Tibu people. 
Mm. And these, these, um, these areas are remote and they, they speak of it as their grazing grounds, but it doesn't belong to the Arabs. Tibu. So maybe we did mention it. We mentioned them briefly. Yes. But this, just this, this idea that there's these, that obviously gave Al-Mashi the, it was a little bit of fuel for him mm. because there was obviously areas that even people who had occupied Fafra, which is super remote, mm-hmm. there was even areas more remote than that, that they would say, that's not ours. Mm. That belongs to peoples of other North African origin. Interesting. And I found that to be pretty interesting. From that's... And we'll, we'll come back to that in the theories, but... Yeah, that's super relevant for just, yeah, exactly more of the theoretical part. And then also, as well, that definitely ties into our... Our last sort of account um, that came from the 1980s onwards into the early 2000s. And yeah. this was from Carl Carlo Bergman. So I have a little brief bio on this guy. Uh, he has his own website. It's called carlo-bergman with two N's dot D-E. And the funny thing about this guy, so like we thought we were like, oh, he's got to be like, he's a, he's a, some sort of an Austrian archaeologist or something. It's like, no, he's just like, like a super eccentric explorer. Yeah. But presumably so, did really good work. Exactly. So it's, this is um, a quote from his website. Uh, so basically, quote, since 1982, Carla Bergman has been spending his winter time in the Libya desert, mostly walking alone, his camels on his coattails. He followed long forgotten caravan roads. Reading the barren landscape while covering more than 75,000 kilometers on foot rewarded him with exceptional discoveries, end quote. So cool. one of these exceptional discoveries was the, the Abu Ballas Trail. He basically right. connected all of the dots of the explorers that had come before him. Yeah. And he, he took it. a total route of 440 kilometers, like straight shot, and discovered 27 different pottery sites along the way, uncovering wow. this ancient caravan trail crazy yeah and it all started with this um this pottery hill that was similar to that one found by prince kamal al-adin in the 1920s and this was situated um approximately 15 kilometers from dakla was that the same one that we had a photo of from episode one while massey that all those pots around the or is that different because hill scattered with pottery good question i wonder if that's the same because obviously because al-kadin and al-masi were partners yeah. And remember we had that reference to, like, the route to Siwa. And it says, he describes as finding many pots still intact. So that definitely leads me to think that that was the, the same location. Because he, got, he does reference Harding King. He mm-hmm. doesn't directly reference uh, Prince Kamal al hmm. but Interesting. Anyway. Yeah. So, and he, another really significant aspect of this find was that the pottery was dated, using carbon-14 dating, to approximately 3,500 years ago. So to me and to a lot of other people, that sort of displays impressive organizational skills for water resources in ancient times. Whether or not that was Definitely. coming from ground resources or if they were transporting this water via like donkeys and stuff. Like, Well, and here's the thing about that. Mm-hmm. You know, he traveled, him and obviously Almasi and Clayton and, and these guys, they were they were heading along caravan routes. Like the Siwa caravan route was more to the northwest, nor, or yeah, northwest, mm-hmm. right? Whether or not that ca- the caravan route was directly connected, going further south and curving and going southwest or whatever, whatever. But <laughs> the idea that obviously water has to come from somewhere, mm-hmm. and so if you're farther, if you're far enough along this caravan route away from known water sources, mm-hmm. you're not going to be carting water from from 
you know, it's come way from further else. back from your from the the place you originally left from. Yeah, it's going to be coming from known water sources along the way. Otherwise, you're going to be expending more resources than it's worth to bring the water back up. And we should just mention right now too, this yeah the the placement of say water pots um, like strategic locations along the way along routes. Because that came up in our first episode, right? right. With um, Cambyses. And basically what he did is he had an arrangement with the Arabian king that the Arabians would go and place these water pots filled yeah, filled with water. Ready to go. At, yeah, exactly. Strategic location so that the army could move across the Sea of Sand yeah. without any, uh, any, uh, any issues. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So anyways, yeah. So basically, yeah, this Bergman, getting back to him. He discovered this um, ancient caravan trail that he called the Abu Bawas Trail. And then he also discovered the Water Mountain. Water Mountain. Which totally refuted all of uh, yeah. all of King's claims and Baal and all these people that basically said that there couldn't have been an oasis this far south because of the way that the um, the geographic layers, sorry, right. geologic layers, the layers of sandstone and uh, clay were deposited. He said right. that it basically couldn't hold groundwater right but this was disproven by bergman and basically he found evidence that there was that yeah there there was water there yeah and that um, well he didn't just find that there was water there he there were hiero there were hieroglyph panels inscribed so that you're getting to hieroglyph panels inscribed on the rock near to where he was during the reign of khufu's successor did (laughs) Did Jeffrey? Did Jeffrey? Did Jeffrey? That sounds like an English name. It was his son, actually. Interesting. So anyway, um, so this was obviously. I mean, I'm honest. I quite frankly, I'm not familiar with those two. They're not. They were very. Those are lesser known. Yeah, they were from (laughs) approximately 2700 BCE. Okay, and probably relatively brief. So this was the 25th. Sorry. No, no, no. Which dynasty would that have been? <laughs> I think it was the 27th. I had it written down and I... It says here that basically the hieroglyphic texts, there were these stone slabs arranged in a breathtaking um, way. And there was all these cartouches with inscriptions from the pharaoh Chufu and his son. Right. And basically these were interspersed with pictographs of animals. Right. And Bergman interpreted the hieroglyphics and it basically explained the purpose of these expeditions to this particular site as being part of an effort to quarry pigments so yes. for dyes and yes. things like that because this was significant that was mm-hmm. that was really important not just for not just for artwork and for building things but necessary for drafting certain things for putting up like it was used for all kinds of different things so like the, mm-hmm. this idea that they needed to quarry quarry things to use for pigments which was obviously different like clay yeah. different things like that mm-hmm. This was so remote. The number of people described that would have been necessary to quarry these types of things would have required a significant water source. Exactly. That's yeah. a very significant find. Mm-hmm. And basically, if there was one thing to kind of overarchingly like just tie this all together, it's just this idea that every single year that we've looked at from the very beginning, starting with the 14th century, basically, every every century you go... People are finding things that they didn't know existed before. Mm-hmm. Whether it's water source, whether it's a caravan route, whether it's how long that caravan route actually extended yeah, and there being exactly. pots along the way. Yeah. So pretty pretty incredible it's stuff. It's pretty cool. And just another 
really hugely significant thing about this water mountain. Um, and again, I did slightly touch on this. So basically he, yeah, threw out the whole idea that there wasn't, that this area didn't have the ability for underground water to collect in aquifers, um, because he found layers of clay coming into light at the rock face of this water mountain. So basically, yeah, so it would have penetrated into the sandstone and promoted the development of underwater, or sorry, underground water resources that could have been tapped by ancients or would have formed natural outlets at topographically favorable places. Hmm. And apparently there was relics up to nine meters of, of uh, this, yeah, this playa, which is native soil that is like a clay. And, um, Interesting. Yeah, so it basically it was found within this vicinity on top of flat sandstone. So, and and just to add to that, in the in the hieroglyphics that he found, yeah, the they were basically he was kind of confused and he thought it was almost like a way to tally or like keep count of something. But then okay. he he kind of reassessed it and he basically came to the conclusion that it was a map, and it basically he theorized that it dated most probably to a late Neolithic period. And this map shows 10 wells and a number of irrigated fields. And two of them are connected with a water source. So Interesting. Yeah, so, cool. so there you go. And then there's all these, um, yeah, these irrigated fields with canals connecting them. So basically a Neolithic culture, non-primitive, I would say, if they got freaking canals and wells and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, they know what they're able doing. Able to find water underground. But here's the thing. Just because the pectoglyphs seem... Neolithic in the in the sense that we would mm-hmm. have the connotation that it is primitive mm-hmm. doesn't mean anything. No. We look at the pyramids and we look at the Egyptian culture, all their history and all their stories and all their writing is two-dimensional hieroglyphs. Mm-hmm. Yet they constructed the mo- three-dimensional pyramids and we have no idea how they did it. Yeah, right? We have no so, evidence of so that. So just so 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 writing systems, drawing, what I suck at drawing. I'm I'm alive in yeah. 2018 and I can't draw anything <laughs> you know that you know what i mean mm-hmm. you know what i'm trying to say though right like it doesn't it doesn't correlate to the to the, the ability uh, the ability mm-hmm. yeah so basically what he took this as this was the first in situ evidence so in place is what that means in right. situ right. evidence of an early agricultural report from neolithic times which is i find that fascinating Very i'm much, just yeah. like holy crap like totally. that just totally explodes all my preconceived ideas of what that would have been like yeah where we're thinking like oh it was only 2500 bc in the later stages of egypt where it was so advanced or like whatever it's like no this idea that there was could have been something so much more advanced like predating the egyptians was is just is so cool so cool and i and i am beginning to believe it more and more and more that every every minute we look at this stuff mm-hmm. and the theory section is going to be a gonna be fun it's gonna be <laughs> yeah it's gonna be exciting <laughs> I'm so, so are you dark. wrapped up with bergman do you think here yes we've covered his main findings and yeah. again we will touch on the implications of those findings in part two yeah so stay tuned for that but as of now um, we're gonna wrap up part one here yeah i mean so basically in this part one we've covered essentially over a hundred years of expeditions well over a hundred years when we're thinking about it. So we've, we're yeah. all the way back. And then even before 18. that, like centuries and centuries of just anecdotal evidence. And totally. Like that. Totally. <laughs> and it is just that it is secondary source. It's anecdotal. It's there's, there's not much. It's very fragmentary, but it depends on a lot of your interpretation. It too. does, but yeah. people are, people are taking that interpretation however you want it. And then as we, as we move along, they're finding things that, that uh, corroborate it. Exactly. Wadi's trails, 
it's just it mm-hmm. just become it just the plot thickens every every really uh, every few years. It's a winding road. Very very yeah. It's just it's awesome. It's super <laughs> so cool. anyway, yeah, we hope all you enjoy listening to this part one. Yeah, we are gonna maybe we've kind of been talking a bit about how we want to structure these episodes from here on out. Yeah, and we're thinking it would be. Um, a little bit better to organize it in terms of two parts. It sounds so, like from the comments we've gotten, everybody seems to want a little bit more detail. Yeah, more detail, more organization, structure, <laughs> things like yeah. that, which is exactly what we want to give you guys. Totally. And basically, so we're thinking we are going to start rolling these out as two-parters. Yeah. And they will be released every week, hopefully. Yeah. Um, we're going to try. We're going to try our best. Yeah. So basically we're going to um, lay it out. So maybe part one is available Sunday. Part two is available on Wednesday. Yeah. yeah. And so you get to look forward to almost like two episodes every week. That would be the, that's, that's the goal. Yes. That's the goal. So let us know mm-hmm. what you think about that. You can reach out to us at um, into the portal mailbox at gmail.com mm-hmm. or on Facebook. Yes. Twitter. Twitter. I've at, had a lot of fun on Twitter. Yeah, Twitter <laughs> at Into the Portal. It's my first one. incursion into Twitter, and I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> no, it's been awesome. It's been great. <laughs> so, yeah, and then basically, we definitely want to um, encourage you to leave your review if you'd like. Um, yeah, if, you, if you're enjoying the show, please leave a review. We've gotten such awesome feedback so far, and we're just you know, really stoked on that. But give us your review, uh, iTunes, Google Play, or your fave platform, whatever that may be. Yeah. Uh, we are definitely, yeah, make sure you go to the website, check out the new look. We've done a little bit of a redesign. Amber and updated the logo. I'm in digging it. I did, yeah. That was uh, my Sunday yeah. last weekend. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, so, yeah, and then also as well, we're going to be updating um, the resources page so you can find all these sources that we've mentioned and more, including the bookstore update. So yes. there's going to be some fun books I've, I've got three or four different ones. If you're interested in ancient Egypt or anything like this and lost anything and just Mm -hmm. cool stuff, go check out our bookstore. There's awesome resources. Yeah, definitely. And then as well, look forward to that blog post because that'll be up too. Amber's been working hard on that. Uh, (laughs) Anyways. Yeah. So we're going to leave it at that. I think. Yeah. So. Thank, thank, thank you so much, you guys, again. And yes. uh, we and will we be back will... very shortly. Exactly. Look forward to it. With part two. Talk to you guys soon. See ya. <laughs>